Let's cultivate our motivation. And as we look around, both on a personal level and also on a societal level or a national level, we see people, ourselves included, sometimes acting in a completely nonsensical way, wasting so much time on accusing each other of different things, creating problems for each other, and all of that in turn creates problems for ourselves. And yet we do this all in the pursuit of happiness, trying to have physical comfort, trying to have social standing, trying to win and be powerful or trying to be famous and well-known. And yet none of it brings any kind of lasting happiness. And instead we seem to create problems for ourselves and others again and again. So when we see this situation very clearly and we form a, a very clear determination to be free of samsara and this whole mechanism, this whole process, then we should wish not only to free ourselves but all living beings saying that everybody is subject to the same confusing state. Different details, but the mechanisms are the same. And so with confidence in our ability to generate wisdom and compassion, with confidence in our ability to subdue our own mind, then let's practice for the benefit of each and every living being, heading for full awakening. So, sorry I wasn't able to teach last weekend. I had some big allergic thing or cold or something going on. But I heard Venerable Tarpa did a very good job. And uh, I think everybody is well set in retreat now. So the uh, topic for tonight actually fits very well uh, in the retreat that you're doing. Okay. Uh, so 
We're talking tonight uh, in the foundation of Buddhist practice, yeah, in chapter six, because we did the first five chapters um, last year and this year in a course. And then last week you started chapter six, and so we're on page 144, contemplating the seven limbs. And so the seven limbs is a practice that we find in almost all these sadhanas or any kind of uh, dharma practice we do in the Tibetan tradition. And they're derived from um, the king of prayers, which is from the Avatamsaka Sutra. The Avatamsaka Sutra and the king of prayers, they have ten um, they're seen as ten um, firm, un, no, unshakable resolves of the Bodhisattva Samantabhadra. And so seven of them became our seven limb prayer. But when you look at the King of Prayers, the aspiration of Samantabhadra, which is in the Red Prayer Book, then you can see these really flushed out in the seven limb prayer, each one is just one line. In the king of prayers, there at least, each one is at least one verse, but the ones of offerings and prostrations are several verses. So you can see that they're very important because they come all the time. You, you know, there's an incredible sutra source, um, these are come in the Tantra practices as, as well. And so they're explicitly for purifying the mind and creating merit, which is important to do. Uh, they give an analogy. It's probably in here somewhere. I haven't started reading it yet, but I'm sure I must have put it in. Um, the analogy is like our, our mind is like a field, and if you're going to grow a crop, you need to uh, take all the rocks out of the field, then you need to fertilize it and water it, and then plant seeds, okay? So the process of taking the rocks and the weeds out is like the purification that we're doing. The process of putting in the fertilizer and water is uh, accumulating merit. And then planting seeds is like listening to teachings, okay? And then uh, there's practice that comes after that. Those three are not sufficient. Then we really have to practice. And then the crop of the realizations come. Okay, but um, the purification and creation of merit practices, they're very good to do when you feel stuck. You know how sometimes you feel stuck in your practice? You ever feel stuck? Yeah, so when you do, it's very good to focus on these, yeah? Uh, so you can do the seven limb prayer, or you can just really take one of the limbs out, like, you know, extract the the first limb of prostrations and then really work on doing prostrations to the 35 Buddhas or extract the limb of offering 
and work on making mandala offerings or offering water bowls, okay? So all of these, you know, we can extract the third one on, on confession, extract that and do a retreat on Vajrasattva, okay? So <clears throat> all these practices, when they do them intense, when we do them intensely, they really shift something in our mind, yeah? And you have to, you have to do them to experience it. And it's hard to describe exactly how it works. Uh, I remember mm, I met the Dharma mm, the summer of 75, and then the next summer of 76, I did the Vajrasattva retreat. And I kept on saying, what is purification? And how do you know you've purified? And what is this, you know? And how does reciting a mantra and visualizing, how does that purify your mind? And, you know, I wanted a detailed scientific explanation. And one wasn't coming, you know, even though I asked uh, several different people. But I did the retreat, and then at the end of the retreat, I noticed that there was a difference in my mind. So that's how you know. Okay. <laughs> what was the difference in my mind? Uh, I think one of the biggest differences was the teachings that I had heard before when I heard the exact same teachings again. The meaning was much richer and much deeper. Okay? So somehow my understanding of the teachings had increased. Something had gone in. Okay? Uh, yeah, so I think that was maybe one of the more pronounced things that I noticed. But, um, yeah, you have to see for yourself. So we'll be going through the seven limb prayer here as it's done, uh, you know, in our, our sadhanas very briefly. But uh, as you can see in the sadhana that you have for the meditation on the Buddha, uh, you can slow it down and you can, you know, if you want to, spend most of the session on the seven limbs. Okay. In fact, any of the branch, any of the, uh, um, you know, uh, different verses in your, your Buddha sadhana, you could spend a long time on them. I mean, refuge and bodhicitta, my goodness. Yeah, you could do a whole retreat on those two. Yeah, and never even finish. So as you're doing the, the, the practice of the Buddha, different sessions, you can emphasize different of the practices. Uh, and then that makes it much more interesting for you instead of just always thinking that you have to do everything at the same speed and in the same way each time. Okay, so really be creative and make the practice interesting for yourself. Okay, so I won't even start on refuge and bodhicitta. They actually came in the preceding section, I think. Yeah, and uh, you could spend a long time on that because it's important. Uh, you know, I mean, we we have. 
why are we doing this practice? You know, who's our guide? That's where refuge comes in. You know, if we don't believe in the Buddha Dharma Sangha, then doing a practice prescribed by the Buddha, you know, I don't know what that's going to get you. It's like you don't have confidence in a doctor, but you go and ask them for medicine. Yeah, but if you don't have confidence, are you even going to take the medicine? Okay, so with refuge, we, we really get clear who we're following and why by knowing the qualities of the Buddha, Dharma, and Sangha. And then why are we doing the practice? You know, again, for bo the reason of bodhicitta, to become fully awakened for the benefit of others. So that automatically, at the very beginning of the practice, it pulls us out of our self-centered trip. Yeah. So if you have a mind that says, oh, I'm coming on retreat so I can relax. Yeah. It's cheaper than going to therapy. <laughs> yeah. Or, or whatever it is, you know. I, I'm doing this sadhana because when you visualize the Buddha and you recite mantra, you feel so blissful and I want to feel blissful. Yeah. So if that if that's your motivation for doing the practice, you know, that's the same motivation people take drugs. <laughs> I want to feel blissful. I want to just, you know, relax my mind. So, but that's not really a good motivation for doing a spiritual practice. Yeah. Okay, we want to relax our minds, but you know, wouldn't it be nice also to do something about our predicament in, in cyclic existence? Because as long as we're in cyclic existence, how can we ever really relax? Yeah, if you think you're going to, you know, tweak your cyclic existence so it's really great and then you can relax, good luck. Yeah. You know, tell me if you do it. <laughs> I haven't met anybody who's done that. <laughs> okay. So, you know, we need to have a motivation that goes beyond, you know, my happiness now. Okay. So, you know, that's why bodhicitta is so important at the beginning. Because our motivation is what determines the value of what we do. So if our motivation is, you know, I just want to feel good. Yeah, there's the Buddha, there's light. Oh, muni muni maha muni yasa. Muni muni maha I mean, it's better than the way you guys chant it, like it's a death, you know, tired, oh. You know, it's like, who died? <laughs> You know, we should chant that. I'd like that, you know, Mooney, Mooney, Ma, Mooney. That has some life in it, at least. Yeah. But your mind has to be serious. Yeah. And, and, you know, and really thinking about the Buddha's qualities, not just doing it to feel good, okay? Not just doing it so you, you know, you all have your little card where you mark how many you've chanted. Yeah. You look at your neighbors, how, how much, they, how many they've chanted. Yeah. Do you check out what other people have done? Yeah. 
do you kind of hold your card as you walk by past Venerable uh, Chinny to see if she gives you the thumbs up or thumbs down? (laughs) (laughs) So, uh, you know, we we really want to uh, try and connect with the Buddha and connect with, uh, you know, with the bodhicitta. That's what the Buddha is all about. Okay, so the seven limbs. Before contemplating the seven limbs, we imagine the merit field. Okay, so a field of merit is so called because in it we plant the seeds of virtue or the seeds of merit. Merit means good karma uh, that will bring good results. So here, uh, so it's called the field, field of merit or the merit field because the beings in it are holy beings and by doing any kind of practice in relationship to the holy beings, we accumulate a lot of merit. Why? Because of their great realizations. Okay, so that's why they're considered the merit field. Okay. Here, the field of merit is the assembly of our root spiritual mentors, the lineage spiritual mentors, meditation deities, Buddhas, Bodhisattvas, solitary realizer, and Shravaka arhats, heroes and heroines, dukkhas and dakinis, and dharma protectors. So in the meditation hall, we have um, uh, a whole that expresses that. Yeah, it's called the the tree of assembled gurus, but it's not just the gurus. It's also all these deities and Buddhas and bodhisattvas and and arhats and so on. Okay? So uh, you can think of all of them, or if, you know, and, and I'm sure dedicating, you know, visualizing each one separately is kind of difficult. Um, but you can just think you're in the presence of a lot of holy beings. Or if you, can, if you prefer, you can think that all of them are consolidated in the figure of the Buddha. So in your sadhana, that's what you've done there. Okay. As the details of this visualization and the way to contemplate its meaning have been described extensively in other texts, I will not go into detail about them here. Okay, so you can read up in other places. So having imagined the holy beings in the space in front of us, uh, we then cultivate the seven practices in their presence. These are prostrating, making offerings, confessing our our negativities, rejoicing in goodness and virtue, requesting Dharma teachings, requesting the Buddha to remain in our world, and then dedicating the merit from doing those six practices. So the purpose of these seven limbs is to purify our mind stream and create merit so that our meditation session will be effective and we will gain deep understanding and experience of the stages of the path. Okay, so that's important to understand. Yeah, why are we doing this? Because if we purify and create merit, yeah, in that session, it 
primes our session for whatever meditation we do that follows, and especially if we're doing uh, the checking meditation on the long rim topics, then it helps us understand them better. Okay. Uh, the importance of purification and creation of merit cannot be overestimated. Okay, and that's really important uh, to remember. Yeah, sometimes we think, oh, there's these nundro practices. Nundro means preliminary, where you really do a lot of purification and collection of merit. Sometimes we think, okay, I'll just do them early on and then got them done and then forget it. And actually, no, when you know every practice you do in that practice, there these come again and again and again. So uh, when you think that we've created negativity since beginningless time, then there's a reason for continually doing these practices. And when you think that our mind needs to really be nurtured by proper virtue, then we really see why we do these again and again. You may recite a long or a short version of the seven limbs while contemplating its meaning. Okay, while contemplating its meaning. Okay, while contemplating its meaning. Okay. Sometimes we recite something so often that our mind is spaced out when we say it. Okay. So this is a, a reminder that whenever we say something, to think about what we're saying while we're saying it. You know? And that's why sometimes varying the text of the words that we say or the length is really helpful, Yeah, because it keeps us from getting uh, stuck in a rut. Okay, so the one that we all you probably know it all by heart now, I hope. Okay. So reverently, I prostrate with my body, speech, and mind. Okay, so we'll take each one. We'll start, say that one, and then go to the top of 145. So prostrating reduces our pride. So that's the purification aspect of it and increases our humility, okay? So each one of these um, has some aspect of purification and some aspect of creating merit. But when you, uh, then when they usually explain them, they'll usually put some more in one side, in the side of purification and some more in the side of creating merit. But if you really look, they. Each one has, has both parts of it. Okay. Making the excellent qualities of the holy beings vivid in our minds, it strengthens our aspiration to practice the path to develop those same qualities ourselves. Okay, so that's the, the accumulation of merit part of the prostrating because we're respecting those worthy of respect and we're doing so by remembering their qualities and by respecting those qualities we open our mind to generate those same qualities okay. now respect in america is not a popular thing okay 
we're a culture that's a little bit short on respect and long on criticism. Don't you think? Yeah? I mean, newspapers, mostly criticism, isn't it? You know, our minds all day, the judgmental, critical mind picking faults. So, you know, we're not very well schooled in, uh, in respect. And, you know, I can see this when, uh, for example, when I'm traveling abroad and I'm invited to give a talk in a school, yeah, you go to, to most international schools run by the other countries, the students sit up straight. You know, if they're little kids, they're a little fidgety, but, you know, that's natural. But, um, you know, they, they're kind of somewhat respectful. You go to American schools, the kids are talking loud. They're here and they're there. They sit in the hallway with their legs sticking out. You're, you're lucky if you get from one place to the other without tripping on them. Um, you know, it's, it's very interesting. Yeah. So this, this is just, uh, you know, the culture here. So I think it's actually helpful for us to learn how to respect other people and especially to respect their qualities instead of always picking faults. So prostrations are done body speech, by our body, speech, and mind. So physically, you know, we go down. Verbally, we're reciting the line. And mentally, we imagine uh, the Buddha in the space in front and ourselves surrounded by all the other living beings and uh, leading them in bowing. Okay, so prostrations are done mentally by remembering the good qualities of the three jewels, verbally by praising these qualities with our speech, and physically by bowing down to show our respect. Okay, so this whole thing of praising qualities, really, it's, uh, yeah, it's, we're not so good at it in this country. Huh? That's just my opinion. So, um, yeah, so this, you know, this thing. I mean, I'll just give myself as an example. Yeah, when I went into the first uh, Dharma teaching and I saw people bowing to the teacher, and what in the world is this? Yeah, they're bowing to a human being. I didn't grow up Catholic. You know, maybe if you grew up Catholic, you're used to bowing and genuflecting and things like that. But the rest of us, you know, what do we bow down to? Our credit card, the refrigerator, the car. Yeah, we don't think of showing respect to, to other people very much, unless we want to butter them up so we can ask them for something. We're very good at buttering people up, okay, you know, and being kind of phony baloney. But that's not what uh, this first branch is about. It's really about sincerely respecting uh, the good qualities of the three jewels. And when you've studied 
about what the three jewels are is then you can understand what their qualities are and what our potential is. And then, you know, respecting those really makes a lot of sense. And it feels good, yeah. Because don't you feel better when you think of other people's good qualities than when you pick faults? Yeah? I mean, we do feel better, but what do we do more of? We pick faults all the time. But we actually feel better when we think of their good qualities. Okay, then the second limb and present clouds of every type of offering, actual and mentally transformed. Okay, so making offerings reduces attachment and stinginess. That's the purifying side of it. And the accumulation of merit side is it increases our generosity and delight in giving. Okay. So we offer, when it talks about off, uh, actual and mentally transformed offerings, we, the uh, actual offerings are the fruit, flowers, incense, water, perfume, and so on, things that we put on the altar, the actual things. Okay. And then the um, mentally uh, uh, transformed offerings are when we uh, imagine beautiful things. So we may offer um, beautiful objects that we possess, like here, forests, and fly, uh, you know. I mean, you can offer your whole room if you want to. But, you know, sometimes, you know, we, we always fuss with our room and make it look nice, but when you think of offering it to the Buddha, it somehow seems insufficient <laughs> yeah at least to me yeah does offering your I mean we take such care with our rooms and decorate it and everything like that but you know do you feel good about offering it to the Buddha no so uh, we imagine you know all sorts of the skies full of beautiful offerings so we can offer Things uh, mentally that we own, we can offer things that we don't own, like the forests and wildflowers and other places of natural beauty that are possessed by others or that are uh, in the public domain. When making mental offerings, imagine objects of incomparable beauty, beauty that fill the universe Offer them to the three jewels, and then imagine the three jewels experiencing bliss from receiving your offerings. In the, uh, I think it's the Blue Prayer Book, we have a practice called uh, Extensive Offerings, yeah? And so that's a practice that one of my teachers created where you just visualize making beautiful offerings. It's a wonderful practice to do, especially when your mind is feeling kind of down and depressed. Because when you do that, you just imagine beautiful things. Yeah. And instead of imagining beautiful things and going out and buying them yourself, you really imagine them even being more beautiful than what you can buy and, and sparkling and, you know, super duper. And you offer these to the three jewels. And just this practice of imagining beauty 
uplifts the mind. Okay. So uh, offer your dharma practice, your effort, understanding, and virtue by imagining them in the form of magnificent objects that you present to the merit field. This is the supreme offering that pleases the Buddhas and Bodhisattvas because it contributes to their aim of liberating all sentient beings. So, you know, there's actual offerings, there's the mentally envisioned offerings, but the best, uh, and then there's also offering our time and our service to the three jewels to help spread the Dharma. Uh, but the best offering is offering our Dharma practice. And so here, uh, we actually think of our merit and our Dharma practice in the form of beautiful things and offer them. And really think of the Buddha being very, uh, and Buddhas and Bodhisattvas being very pleased with that offering. As Shantideva stresses in engaging in the Bodhisattva deeds, making offerings is necessary to accumulate the merit that supports us in generating bodhicitta and attaining full awakening. High bodhisattvas such as Samantabhadra emanate a vast display of sumptuous and glorious items that they offer to all the Buddhas and bodhisattvas in all the pure lands throughout the universe. So if you really want to expand your mind, okay, just think of the whole universe filled with pure lands. So each pure land has Buddhas in it and bodhisattvas, and it's a fantastic place to practice the Dharma. There's no distractions, and everybody's very cooperative, and, you know, nobody, you don't have to pay taxes, and there's no email and you know and no no texts you you can just do your practice okay um, yeah so you imagine these pure lands with all these holy beings and then you really think you know all these beautiful things that you're sending out to them and this is a practice that these uh, Arya Bodhisattvas do they get to a point in the path where they can manifest uh, different bodies that go to the pure lands and then manifest all these beautiful offerings that they give and then think that the three jewels experience pleasure from receiving the offerings. Actually, the three jewels, you know, are offerings. I mean, what, you think the Buddha needs some tangerines? <laughs> Yeah, I mean, when we offer tangerines, or we offer that we imagine the whole universe filled with tangerines and pears and whatever, you know, you think the Buddha needs that to experience bliss? You know, come on, yeah. Uh, so the offerings are done for our benefit, okay? Uh, but we imagine that the Buddhas and Bodhisattvas are happy to receive them. Basically because, why are they happy? Because we're creating merit, and when we create merit, that's what makes them the happiest, because their whole purpose is to help us get out of samsara. So when we follow the path, you know, they're going, yippee, you know. Yeah, when we just put some tangerines on there, you know, it's like, Okay, it's five o'clock in the morning. I'm on the rota to offer things. Yeah, 
So, okay, what, what do they have? Oh, they have some tangerines. Okay, I don't know how old they are, but anyway, I'm tired. I can't see. Put them in a bowl. Go up, put them on the altar, turn around. Oh, now I can make myself a cup of tea. Ooh, tea. Ooh, that's good. Ooh, now, yeah. Mm, yeah. Uh, so we can also offer the tea, you know. Um, okay. It's interesting, isn't it, how we perk up when we're offering to ourselves? <laughs> you know, when we're putting it on the altar, like, and yeah. Okay, like, oh, that's a small bowl, okay. That leaves some tangerines for me to eat. If I put a big bowl out, then all the tangerines go to the Buddha. I don't have anything to eat. Yeah. So that, that's the kind of mind that we're trying to overcome, you know, that stingy mind that's always bargaining of, you know, what can I hold on to for myself? Okay, well, we are currently unable to emanate these elaborate offerings. Visualizing them brings great benefit because... Uh, we can offer them free from the attachment we may have for our possessions. Okay, so it's important to offer things free of attachment. Yeah, and that's why we really offer them. We don't put them on the altar until we decide to eat them. Yeah, but we really <laughs> offer them, you know. Um, Okay, and that's why we offer water, because water is usually plentiful, and we're not so attached and stingy about it. Although, I remember one time when I was living in Dharamsala, the, something happened to the, the pipes. We all had outside water taps, and water was really difficult to come by. And then it's like, okay... How much water can I keep for tea, and how much do I offer to the Buddha? And then you, you know, you see the stingy mind there, really regarding water. But that's why we make the water offerings, because hopefully we can just do it without a stingy mind. Okay. In addition, since visualized, so with visualized offerings, there's hopefully no stinginess. Okay, because <laughs> we we don't have them in our little hands. In addition, since visualized offerings are mentally fabricated and do not exist in the way they appear, it is easier to contemplate the phenomena arise due to designation by name and concept, and thus are empty of inherent existence. Okay, so to contemplate emptiness while we're making offerings as well. You may want to meditate using the verses of offering that Shantideva wrote in chapter two of his inspiring book. So that whole chapter almost is offering this and that and this and that and it's it's really uh, very inspiring to to contemplate that so we have uh, copies of the book they should be in the the guest library out here okay then the third line I confess all my destructive actions accumulated since beginning this time so I uh, came to a different understanding. My Chinese friends always talk about repentance. 
And here we talk about confession. So I looked them up in the dictionary. Okay, Confession means you open up and say your faults. Repent means you confess and you regret them. So repentance goes a step further than confession, according to the dictionary. Okay, but the important point with this one is not just to confess, but to really have uh, an attitude of regret. Okay, now why do we regret our negativities? It's not because the Buddha is going to punish us. Yeah. So don't put, if you were brought up in a Christian situation, don't put that kind of thing on Buddhism. There's no creator God who punishes and rewards people in Buddhism. Okay? Absolutely not. So you don't have to worry about getting punished. However, causes bring results. Yeah? It's a very scientific thing. Yeah? Causes bring results. And when we do a cause, when we create a cause motivated by selfish intent or anger or greed or whatever, it's going to bring a result of a long-term result of unhappiness. When we create a cause motivated by generosity and kindness and compassion, it will bring a happy result. Okay? So... We're not fearing reward and punishment, but we are concerned that our actions created out of ignorance, created when we were overwhelmed by afflictions, that we created the cause for our own suffering. Okay? So it's kind of like you've taken poison, but you haven't gotten sick from it yet. Yeah, so you drunk something, you thought it was, you thought it was Kool-Aid. <laughs> yeah, it was another kind of Kool-Aid. It hasn't taken effect yet, and you don't want it to, so that's why we do purification. Okay. We have regret that we've done something, not only something that's harmed others, but something that will bring pain upon ourselves, too. Okay? So we regret the whole circumstance. Regret is very different from guilt. Yeah, and you've probably heard me say this many times, and I will say it again, because we are very strongly habituated with guilt. Okay? Yeah? I did a retreat once. We had uh, a, we did a discussion group about guilt. The Catholics in one group, the Protestants another one, the Jewish Jews in another one. And at the end, we tried to figure out who had most, more guilt. And it was a tie between the Catholics and the Jews. You know, the Protestants. You know didn't make it, although I think some of the hellfire and brimstone Protestants could probably come in there somewhere, okay? But we've been taught that if, we've, if we feel guilty and hate ourselves, 
that somehow it's going to atone for what we've done. Hating ourselves, feeling guilty, getting depressed, that's not one of the practices to purify negative karma. Okay? You have to remember that. Yeah. There isn't an eighth practice in the seven limb one, you know, that says guilt and self-hatred. Okay. So we have regret, but we don't feel guilt. Okay. The regret is you know, you realize you did something dumb and you did and you regret it. Guilt is you start whipping yourself and beating yourself up about it, okay? And the guilt gets in the way of purification because when we feel guilty, we dig ourselves into a hole. How bad I am, how awful I am, how could I have possibly done that? I hope nobody knows what I've done and that nobody finds out because they'll all turn against me because I'm such a horrible, unforgivable, you know, person. Okay. That kind of attitude doesn't get you anywhere in your practice except it makes you depressed. Can you practice when you're depressed? No. Okay, that kind of, that way of thinking is what makes people self-medicate. You know, that's how you get into drugs and alcohol and gambling addiction and internet addiction and all of that, okay? So in Buddhism, yeah, we regret but then what happens when we regret? Yeah. The Buddha responds with showering purifying light on us. Yeah. And we, we imagine this light entering into our body mind and the the heaviness of our non-virtue just completely disappears. And our body-mind is filled with this light of wisdom and compassion from the Buddha. And we feel blissful. So the bliss purifies, not the depression. Okay? So this is very, very important. Yeah. Otherwise, you know, people can really dig themselves into a hole in their practice. And, you know, it does absolutely no good. Okay, so this whole process of purification, we imagine the Buddha forgiving us, but what's really going on is we are learning to own our own negativities, reveal them without concealing them, and forgiving ourselves and letting them all go. Okay? Not saying our negativities were okay. They weren't okay. We created the cause for our own pain and we may have hurt somebody else. But, okay, 
It's the bliss that is purifying all that heaviness and allowing us then to go forward in our lives, having learned from our experience. When we feel guilty, we haven't learned from the experience. We've just gone around and around in circles hating ourselves. Okay? So it's the whole process of purification or repentance, whatever we're doing, is we're looking back on what we did, trying to understand how did I, what motivated me to do that? How did I get myself in that situation, you know, physically and mentally, where I wound up acting that way? And how else could I look at that kind of situation so that if it comes up in the future, I don't act the same way and I don't think the same way? Yeah. So what is a Dharma way to relate to that kind of situation? You know, so maybe you blew up and exploded at somebody who criticized you and threw things at the person you love the most and you feel horrible about it, yeah, then to really think, okay, what got me involved in exploding like that? Yeah, what was I thinking? How was I interpreting the situation? What was I projecting and exaggerating in the situation that my behavior got so uncontrolled? Yeah. So that way you understand what happened in the past. You understand your way of incorrect way of thinking. And then you think of the some of the Dharma teachings, the Dharma remedies, the antidotes to the different um, mental afflictions, and you practice them in your meditation, yeah, so that they become more familiar. So if something like that situation happens again, instead of acting in the same old way, you know, you have some habit in, in how to look at the situation in a different way. Okay? And then that becomes really, really useful in your life. Yeah? And that's how you really begin to change. And forgive yourself. Yeah? So that as we age, we aren't stockpiling anger and bitterness and resentment. Yeah. You, you see sometimes young people who are so exuberant, and then you see them 30 years later, and they're like this, you know. What happened? They, you know, life got to them, and they made a lot of mistakes in their life, and they haven't settled the mistakes in their own mind. They haven't forgiven themselves. They haven't seen alternate ways of being. So even though you've made a mistake and you can't undo it, you can learn from it so that you don't do that thing again in the future. And then you can go on with your life in a much more upbeat way. Okay? So this is very, very important psychologically and spiritually. Mm -hmm. So this, this third branch of 
confession or repentance is, is very, very important. And that's why, uh, you know, in the Nundro practices, we do many of these things 100,000 times. Yeah, so the prostrations are mostly for purification. 100,000 purification, 100,000 prostrations, not the short ones, the long ones, okay, where your nose is on the floor. Uh, and you really are opening up and saying, poof, you know, I've done this and I want to clear it all up. And it's, it feels so good when you do that. Okay, now you do Vajrasattva and all that light and nectar is pouring down, yeah? And you can't sit there and think of Vajrasattva pouring blissful light and hate yourself at the same time. Okay, you just can't do it if you're doing the practice correctly. If you get distracted, then you can hate yourself. But if you're doing the practice correctly, you can't do that. Okay? So it's, uh, yeah, it really works. Okay, so I confess all my destructive actions accumulated since beginningless time. So all of them. Okay, so it's not just that I stole my brother's marbles, okay, or that I told a little white lie. It's, you know, you think of everything you possibly could have done in beginningless lifetimes. You know, think of some lifetime where you were president of a country and you did what is going on right now. Imagine the karma you created when you influenced so many people's lives in that way and created so much suffering. Or imagine, you know, a, a previous lifetime where we were Hitler or Stalin or Mao Zedong or who knows what, yeah? Hey, we, there are plenty of previous lifetimes. They say we've been there, done that, gotten all the T-shirts. Okay, but we want to clear all of that up. Okay, so... You know, you really think of all of that. And, uh, you know, the verses that we chant, the song that we did our confession today, and then you did the lay confession, that uh, initial verse that you do when you, when you say, boy, you know, you can really, we chant it very, very slowly. And it really gives you a chance to think of, you know, my previous lives, who knows what I could have done with my body, with my speech, with my mind, you know. And times when I was overwhelmed by attachment and anger and confusion. And you just, you know, even though you can't remember specific actions, you just, whatever it was, I confess it. Okay. Okay, so confessing negativities is done through the four opponent powers. We have engaged in countless physical, verbal, and mental deeds motivated by ignorance, animosity, and attachment. Okay, the seeds of these misdeeds ripen in unpleasant or painful experiences. Okay, the seeds also obscure our minds and prevent us from gaining realizations. 
and they also limit our ability to benefit others. And they manifest in terms of obstacles in our practice. Yeah, you come and do retreat, and then, you know, you get sick. Yeah, so when you get sick, instead of going, oh, I feel so terrible, this is an obstacle for my negative karma, oh, I'm such a rotten person, you say, good, my negative karma, you know, it ripened in this sickness, and that's sure better than a few eons in the hell realm. I can handle this sickness. Actually, it's quite a breeze, you know, you get a cold. Yeah, or whatever's wrong with your body, you know? I was like, okay, I can handle this. This isn't so bad. And you think it's purifying eons of destructive karma from the past. Okay? But if you do intense purification, then sometimes it, you can avoid even getting sick. And that kind of, uh, you know... Um, uh, it, you know, the thing interfering with your practice, okay? To, so to purify these negativities, first generate a sense of regret for the harm you have inflicted on yourself and others through your destructive behavior. Regret is the main cause to purify destructive actions. And the stronger it is, the stronger will be the second power, the determination to restrain from such active actions in the future. This step gives you the inner strength to begin changing your ways and counteracting habitual harmful behavior. Okay, so some things we've done in the past, we might feel so like, bleh, like we can truthfully say, I will never do that again. Basta finito, I will not do that again. Other things, you know, like I'm not going to gossip again. Eh, you know, okay, let's say for two days I'm not going to gossip again. You know, give yourself some realistic time period. Okay. Okay, then third, take refuge in the three jewels which purifies destructive actions created in relation to the three jewels, and generate bodhicitta, which purifies negativities created in relation to other sentient beings. So actually, at the beginning of your practice, you generate you, you take refuge and generate bodhicitta. That's two of your four opponent powers right there. Okay. Um, taking refuge and generating bodhicitta uh, transforms the harmful or ignorant attitude you previously had towards holy beings and sentient beings into a virtuous mental relationship with them. After confessing your faults, it is helpful to do the taking and giving or tonglen meditation, which will be described in volume five which is at the publishers. <laughs> okay, fourth, apply remedies to those destructive actions by engaging in constructive actions. For example, 
bowing to the three jewels, okay? I'll hear 100,000 prostrations. Reciting mantras, 100,000 of those. Making offerings, 100,000 mandala offerings, or 100,000 water bowl offerings. Circumambulating holy objects, meditating on emptiness, generating bodhicitta, doing volunteer service at a charity, a dharma center, or a monastery, or helping others in other ways. Okay? So we do some kind of virtuous action. So when you notice that after lunch you would really like to take a nap, but you're on dishes, instead of thinking, how can I get out of doing the dishes so I can take a nap. Say, this is going to be my action of remedial behavior, offering service to a group of people who are meditating, you know? And those people, because they're trying to create virtue, are a powerful group of people to offer service to and to create merit uh, in terms of them. Okay, then you go into the kitchen and I'm so glad to wash dishes because I'm purifying, yeah? And then you take out the vacuum cleaner and you're so glad to vacuum the floor. You look doubtful. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, if you think of these things as I'm offering service to the community, especially to a Dharma community, yeah, then they become virtuous activities. So, you know, you're shoveling snow. Uh, all these things. Okay, so that's the third one. Then the fourth, and rejoice in the virtues of all holy and ordinary beings. Okay? So rejoicing, and rejoicing in virtue. This is another thing that we're a little bit short on in this country, okay? We rejoice at getting what we want. We rejoice at things happening the way we want. We enjoy, rejoice when we get possessions and money and a good reputation and praise and all these kinds of things, okay? But that's not the kind of rejoicing we're doing in the fourth, the fourth one. Here we're rejoicing at our own and others' virtue. Okay. So we're letting ourselves feel happy about our own and others' virtue. We're acknowledging our virtue. We're feeling happy about it. We're looking even at the virtue of the holy beings and all the incredible things they do and rejoicing at it. And they say that rejoicing is the lazy person's way to create merit. Because if you rejoice, you create you know, merit that's similar to the merit the other person did by doing the action. So if it's a person who's less realized and you rejoice at their virtuous action, you create more, more merit than they did. Okay, so we're getting into the merits math, okay? <laughs> Some people get really excited about this. If you 
rejoice at the virtue of somebody who's equal in practice. You, you create the same merit, you know. So they just did 100,000 prostrations. You're sitting on your bed. It's a good deal, isn't it? Yeah? Yeah? But you really have to rejoice, really from the bottom of your heart, yeah? And if you rejoice at the merit created by the Buddhas and Bodhisattvas, then you get a portion of the, you know, that's comparable to their merit. Okay. It's also good to rejoice. It, this verse, you know, this line is more about rejoicing virtue at virtue, but it's also good to rejoice in general when we, uh, when we see good things happen to other people. Because so often what we do when we see good things happen to other people is we get jealous. Yeah? Why did they get the promotion? Why did they win the lottery? Why do they have cute kids or cute pets? You know, I want these things too. Oh, you know. I mean, we can get jealous of anybody over anything, can't we? You know, somebody has better sports equipment than we do. Somebody else has a better, you know, who has the new iPhone? I don't even know what number it is now. You know, they, they can afford that new iPhone. Oh, I can't yet. Oh, you know, how come? Yeah. Or, you know, so any kind of thing, you know, oh, somebody's dating a really wonderful person. Oh, I'm stuck with the same old, same old. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's just me and my dog all the time. <laughs> yeah. uh, you know, so the mind that gets jealous, that thinks, you know, other people shouldn't have this happiness, I should. Okay, so the mind of entitlement. We have lots of that. Lots of that. The world owes me something. I am entitled to something. But other people got it. So let's keep the immigrants out of the country so they don't take my, my job. But let's keep all the rich people in the country even though they exploit me. Don't ask me to explain that. But, you know, look at how our jealousy works. Yeah, where is a lot of this racism and so on based? It's based on jealousy and fear. Yeah, because I want it and they might get it. And that kind of mind of jealousy is so painful because then you never trust anybody. Everywhere you look, there's harm coming at you because somebody might get something that you should have. And it starts when we were kids. Yeah, we get jealous of our siblings. Because they got something we didn't. Or we get jealous of the kids across the street. You know, when your parents said to you, why can't you be like fill in the blank? Do you remember that? Yeah? For me, why can't you be like Jeannie Gordon? She lived across the street. 
I always wonder what happened to Jeannie Gordon. <laughs> you know? Why, why can't you be like her? Well, because I'm not. <laughs> yeah. But, you know, or, you know, you're jealous, you know? You let my brother, my younger brother, okay? When I was his age, you didn't let me do that. But he's the same age, and you let him do it. That's not fair. Okay, remember that? So uh, we're very well trained in jealousy. Yeah, and we bring it right into the Dharma Center. Okay, I got to drive the teacher around. Yeah. I got a longer appointment with the teacher than you did. I have a signed photograph with me and the teacher. Do you have one? Oh, that's too bad. Okay. So we bring her right into the Dharma Center. Yeah. We get jealous. Oh, they can sit without moving. I'm so fidgety. Yeah. The teacher prefers them. That you know, that one's the teacher's favorite. I'm not the teacher's favorite, but I try so hard to be a good disciple, but I'm never good enough, and they always like somebody more than me. <laughs> Okay, it's just, you know, we've never outgrown that. <laughs> Have we? Yeah, right in, right in with us. Huh? Oh, there's the Dalai Lama coming. Is he going to look at me? He, he looked at that person. He didn't look at me. <laughs> Why does he... He knows them. Why does he always look at them in front of the crowd? <laughs> okay. So rejoicing in your own and others' virtue is the fourth limb. Doing this is an excellent method to fill your mind with hope and joy and overcome competition and jealousy. Who suffers from competition? Who suffers from jealousy? Who suffers from arrogance? Yeah, these three are very interrelated. Some of you didn't raise your hand <laughs> at any of those. I salute you. <laughs> and considering that you're not willing to be honest, I'm not sure. <laughs> okay, reflect with joy on the virtues you and others have created in this and previous lives. And at all the goodness in the world. Yeah? I mean, really sit there. And in the age of Trump, we need to rejoice in all the goodness in the world. Think of all the people, you know, who are doing things from, uh, for other people. You know, all the doctors and nurses and teachers and, uh, you know, all sorts of people. Yeah? Yeah? 
But all the people who are nursing kangaroos in Australia, yeah, and nursing koalas in, in Australia, yeah, I find that quite touching. You know, the picture with a baby bottle feeding a, a kangaroo, you know? Or there was one picture of some little deer that had wandered onto, this was in the US, not in Australia, wandered onto a frozen pond and they couldn't get out and somebody skated there and roped the deer and pulled them out and got them to safety. You know, just things like that. And I, there's people are helping each other all the time. And we really need to notice that and rejoice at it. So we reflect uh, with joy on the virtues you and others have created in this and previous lives and at all the goodness in the world. Rejoicing in your own virtue invigorates and multiplies it so that it will increase day by day. Also admire and rejoice in the virtues of people you know and those you don't, reflecting repeatedly on their constructive thoughts, feelings, words, and deeds. So look at the goodness in the world and rejoice. Hmm? Rejoicing in the virtues and spiritual attainments of the Buddhas, Bodhisattvas, solitary realizers, and Shravakas throughout all time and space creates vast merit. If you and others are of similar levels on the path, by rejoicing at their virtue, you accumulate merit equal to theirs. If they are of lesser attainment, your rejoicing creates more merit than their original virtuous actions. The practice of rejoicing is praised because through making a small effort, great merit is accumulated. And it makes your mind really happy. Yeah. It makes your mind happy and it pulls you out of this despair, depressed, you know, thing that we've got going. And it's, it's like, okay, all that junk's going on, but there's also a lot of goodness. And we've got to pay attention to the goodness and encourage it and rejoice at it. Okay. Then the next branch, five, is um, please remain until cyclic existence ends. Okay, so actually, and this this one comes uh, as the the fifth, and then turn the wheel of Dharma for sentient beings. Very often those two are reversed, and you request turn turning the wheel and then asking the Buddhas to remain. Okay, but in the explanation here. Uh, requesting Dharma teachings comes next. So that counteracts abandoning the Dharma and creates the cause to receive teachings in the future. So remember, abandoning the Dharma is when we uh, make up something and pretend it's Dharma and teach it to others or even practice it ourselves. So very deceitful, very misleading. So it helps to purify that, to request teachings 
from uh, the Buddhists and Bodhisattvas and our teachers, and it creates the cause to receive teachings in the future. Now, you may say, why do I have to do that? You know, I have a life. Dharma teachings are all around me. Okay, I have to drive a half an hour to the Dharma Center. What a drag. But I can watch him on TV, and then I, then I can just stay at home and have my cup of coffee and put my feet up and have some Dharma teachings at the same time. Yeah, what do I have to request anything for? Actually, if I stay at home, then I don't even need to make offerings for receiving the Dharma teachings. It's a good deal, isn't it? Okay. So initially, we may not understand why requesting Dharma teaching is this important. Okay, so when I was a baby nun, when I first met the Dharma before I, I ordained, and when I was uh, newly ordained, I was living in Copan. So there were teachings around holy beings, around Dharma was all around. My, then my teacher sent me to work in the Italian Dharma Center. There was no resident teacher at that time. I was it, you know? It's like there are a bunch of people, and I was supposed to do something to help those people somehow. Yeah, and I just wanted to study with my teachers because I was a baby nun. I didn't know very much, but there was nobody there to teach me. This limb and the seven limbs took on a whole different meaning for me. And I would really stop and really sincerely, you know, request the Buddhas and Bodhisattvas and all my teachers, please, you know, come to Italy. <laughs> you know, or let me go somewhere else where I can receive Dharma teachings. Yeah, because it was really like a, a desert there at the time. Yeah. Quite a desert. Okay. So we must not take our present good fortune of encountering teachers and teachings for granted, but appreciate and take advantage of them. Requesting teachings is one way to do this. Requesting the Buddhas to turn the wheel of Dharma to teach us the path to awakening also creates the cause to receive teachings in the future. Whenever possible, attend Dharma discourses given by qualified spiritual mentors. As a beginner, study books that give you a general overview of the path. As you advance, delve into the sutras, the great Indian commentaries, and commentaries by other Buddhist sages. Okay. Now, you traveled with me. What did I do whenever I met my teachers when I said goodbye? Make prostrations. No, I didn't make prostrations when I said goodbye. Request that they live long and they keep teaching. Yeah, I requested that they live long, be healthy, and continue to teach and guide us. Yeah, so that's the prostrations came when I first saw them. The offering came when I first saw them. Before I left, 
then I made those two requests. Yeah, because you, you, we cannot take these things for granted, you know? If you're, I mean, when I started out, this, people laugh when I call this a barbaric country, but a barbaric country was a place where the Dharma was not available. And when I started out in 1975, it was very, very difficult to find Dharma teachings, you know? There were some maybe in other languages that I didn't understand them, the other languages. In English, very difficult to find teachings. Yeah, very few Dharma centers. So it was really a wasteland. Yeah. So that's why I went to India. Yeah, there was no choice. If I wanted to learn the Dharma, I couldn't do it here. Yeah. So I picked up and left. Okay, then the next one, yeah, is requesting the Buddhas to remain in cyclic existence. Uh, to remain not in cyclic existence, <laughs> but until cyclic existence ends. Okay, so that helps to purify negativities created in relation to our spiritual mentors and the Buddhas and it increases our understanding of the importance of having excellent spiritual mentors. Okay, so we don't take the presence of our spiritual mentors in our lives for granted. We don't take the teachings for granted. Yeah, and those two go together. Yeah, so we need to not only request that our teachers remain and that the Buddhas manifest, but we need to request teachings as well. Yeah, otherwise you wind up in a situation like uh, in the very early days uh, after the Tibetans came out, His Holiness sent uh, some lamas to the West. Nobody knew who they were. The teachers were there. Nobody requested teachings. Yeah, and if you read Kyungla Ratu Rinpoche's book, My Life and Lives, yeah, he he's an incredible practitioner, a very high lama. He came to New York. He was working in Macy's, packing boxes in Macy's. Nobody thought of asking for teachings. Sometimes he sat in Central Park and panhandled because he wanted to see what it was like to have that experience. Yeah. Here's an incredible person there. Nobody asked for teachings. Okay? Okay, so... Um, with heartfelt sincerity, request the emanation bodies of Buddhas not to pass into parinirvana, but to remain in the world to guide sentient beings according to their various dispositions and tendencies. So sentient beings have so many dispositions and tendencies. Yeah, we need many different kinds of teachers, many different kinds of teachings to meet the needs of all these different beings. And then the seventh was I dedicate all the virtues of myself and others to the Great Awakening. 
So it says, to conclude the seven limb prayer, dedicate the merit accumulated from the above practices for the full awakening of yourself and others. Imagine your merit transforms into offerings that you present to the three jewels and to sentient beings. Okay, so dedicating the merit is actually a practice of generosity. You're uh, giving the merit away, yeah? But by giving it, you increase it. When I first went to Singapore, there was one man. It was very sweet. He, he was the one, actually, um, the very first booklet I put together, I wonder why, he was the one who sponsored that, that booklet. And he wanted to learn to meditate, so I taught him to meditate. And then at the end of the session, I said, we're going to dedicate the merit to all the sentient beings. And he looked at me and he said, Venerable, I have so little merit, I don't want to dedicate it. You know, because he thought if he gave, if he dedicated it and gave it away, he wouldn't have it anymore. And I explained, no, if you dedicate it, it increases. Yeah, it protects your merit. You need to practice that. So finally, he 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 did. Okay. So, if you have questions, we have a few minutes. Yeah. Um, about getting a little bit creative with the different parts of the sadhana. Mm -hmm. um, Venerable Sampton had read this mandala offering written by Rob Priest, and yeah. he, mm -hmm. he brought in his own life and his own experiences. So I'm. And then I was talking with someone. They were saying, "How much can we reword mm -hmm. the the scripts?" So, for example, the seven limb prayer. Would it be possible for us to rephrase it in a way that speaks to us? Um, you can try, and then run it past some people to see if you got it in the correct way. You know, if if, if it's, I rejoice at all the good things that happened to me. Um, <laughs> then uh, no, <laughs> okay. But uh, yeah, you can try your hand at, at rewriting some things and then run it past some other people. Mm -hmm. oh, but by the way, when you do deity meditations, you don't change what the deities look like, okay? Yeah, you visualize the, the way they're taught because that has a special purpose. Yeah? Where it says, after confessing your faults, it's helpful to do the taking and giving meditation, mm -hmm. which we'll be described later. Could you just say a little bit about what the purpose is there? Uh, what the purpose of, of doing taking and giving? Especially after confessing your faults. Okay, because uh, when you do the taking and giving, you're taking others' negativities and you're giving them your happiness, okay? So it's like I've confessed my own negativities and I'm building compassion and so now I wanna take on others' negativities as well. You know, and give them my my good you know the good things that are happening to me. Uh, also, because the taking and giving builds up our our inner strength. 
okay? And when we, you know, think of taking others' negativities, it can energize us not to create uh, those same negativities ourselves. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Some questions from online. Um, uh, the FOSA Singapore is asking, what is emanation bodies? Like from, with heartfelt sincerity, we request the emanation bodies of Buddhas not to pass into Parinirvana. Okay, so the emanation body, I, uh, you can look up. Yeah, it's uh, in volume four. Volume, yeah. Volume four, um, following in the Buddha's footsteps. So that one is an easy one for you to look up. And then a follow-up question to that is, is it, um, sorry, uh, is it a selfish request to request the emanation of bodies of Buddha not to pass into Parinirvana? Why is it selfish? See, everybody is so interesting. People think that, you know, requesting teachings is selfish. People think going on retreat is selfish. People think that making offerings is selfish because you're creating merit for yourself. Your idea of selfish is completely upside down. Okay? When you're creating virtue, you're not being selfish. Unless you're thinking, you know, okay, I'm just going to keep this merit off of myself. And I'm not giving it to anybody, you know. Yeah? Why do, when, when you are out, you know, cheating people in your business, you never think I'm being selfish. Yeah? But when it, it comes to requesting teachings, oh, I'm being selfish. When it comes to, to going on retreat and having to look at your mind, oh, that's selfish. My family wants to go on a vacation to the Caribbean. I should be compassionate and go on vacation. You never think that's selfish. Yeah, that's selfish. Yeah. Yeah, people say, oh, when you aspire for liberation, when you uh, generate bodhicitta, you want to become a Buddha. Isn't that selfish? That's not selfish. You're doing it for the benefit of others. What's selfish is your everyday behavior. When you think of how can I get out of doing this small chore because I don't want to do it, and how can I make the most money, and how can I get this, and how can I get that? That selfishness. <laughs> Got it? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> when confessing negativities, uh, it says that it's done through the four opponent powers. I know you mentioned one is bodhicitta. And what are the other three? Oh, the other four are right there in the paragraph. If you read it, it, it talks... You know, it says, uh, the first one is, it's the paragraph. Um, okay. Okay, it starts on the bottom, 145, and then goes through partway down on 146. Okay. Okay, thank you. Yeah. This will be the last question. Um, 
I was just wondering if you had any suggestions for working on visualization and if you think it's something we should focus on with these sadhanas? Mm, it's helpful to work on our visualizations. Um, don't squeeze your mind. Try and have an expansive mind and uh, really go for the feeling of being in the presence of holy beings. Even you, if you can't get you know, the details of, of what color their fingernails are. Uh, you know, don't worry about that kind of stuff. Just have the feeling that you're in the, you know, there's a lot of holy beings sitting there. Or if you visualize the Buddha, go over the details and then fix your mind on whatever image you get. When that starts to fade, go over the details again. What I find is I get a flash of something and then it's just gone. Yeah, that's that's yeah, that's totally normal. But if I say visualize pizza, I'm sure you can do it more than a flash. <laughs> okay, yeah, can't you hold the visualization of pizza? Yeah. So <laughs> it's it's just a matter of familiarization. That's all. Yeah. Okay.